For this morning's meditation, please turn with me to Romans, the fifth chapter. And uh, there's a handout that was sent out in the email last night. I encourage you to also uh, refer to that for the scriptures and some follow-up discussions that we can have with our families. So we'll begin um, our reading at verse 20 in Romans chapter 5. And to set the backdrop for that as you look that up, I wanted to talk about the theme of grace. And this is a theme that is begins in Genesis and is contained throughout the entire scripture all the way to the book of Revelation. And grace is simply to find favor with someone, typically unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And when we talk about God's grace, it is his unmerited favor towards us. He doesn't owe us anything, and yet out of his goodness and kindness and love has done so much for us, all encompassed in that small word of grace. And if we begin in the Old Testament, just so you understand a couple of ideas of how this thread plays out in the, in the book of Genesis, I believe it's uh, chapter 9, where the, 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 the scripture says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And there God provided that unmerited favor to Noah and his family to save him from the flood that came to destroy the evil that was there. Another example of that is Moses in Exodus chapter 33, where God, the scripture says, God gave grace to Moses in the same way, saved him from banishment in the desert where he was and commissioned him to save the people of Israel from their slavery. And there's a pattern that begins to develop that God just not, doesn't just give unmerited favor, but also commissions and gives a mission as part of that grace. And then <clears throat> this morning in Bible class, we were studying Ezekiel. And <clears throat> is a great example also of how God extended his grace to the people as they were in captivity. And they had a vision of the dry bones and what God was going to do in the future. And we see as Ezra, in less than 100 years after that, wrote about how God's grace and unmerited favor was upon them as they came back from that exile, from being slaves in the land of Persia, under the various kingdoms that were there, and God granted them grace to return and save them from that slavery. And then we can continue on, even as we get into the uh, uh, New Testament, the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, where it says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And it makes it clear that it's appeared to all. It's not just to a few People, but God's grace, His favor, He desires every one of us to experience that. And so, as we focus our attention on the book of Romans, the verses that we read together gives a contrast of that great unmerited favor and the power that comes through that from God and how it contrasts to sin. And how 
It rescues us from the slavery of sin and provides freedom by that grace. So we pick up our reading in verse 20 of chapter 5. It said, the scripture says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And let's skip down now to verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I'd like to conclude here at verse 18. Sin is potent and contagious. Earlier in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul lays out this notion that we received our sin nature from our forefathers. When Adam sinned, that contagion passed on to all of humanity. And certainly in the times we live in right now, we understand how uh, dangerous somebody who is contagious can be. And in the... we, we understand various diseases that um, are contagious, that are passed from one person to the other. But the distinct difference between sin is that there is no one that is exempt from it. See, the diseases that we have, as many of them are, are terrible over the years and the, the, the decades and even the centuries that have been researched. Diseases like smallpox and, and polio, which um, many of us in our generation don't really know much about because of the vaccines that have been developed But back then in the 40s and 50s when there were outbreaks of polio across North America, they were living in a similar time as we are today. As many people died, as as polio is far more contagious than COVID, provide um, somebody who catches it becomes paralyzed and many die from that disease. And it wasn't until there was a vaccine that was developed and became widespread, that essentially it became eradicated. Something that had plagued human civilizations for thousands of years now is not something as part of our vocabulary anymore. Praise the Lord for that. And here in verse 20, the Apostle Paul contrasts the contagion of sin 
where sin is abounding and growing and saying that that disease, though it is powerful and grows and, and overwhelms, but grace did much more abound. It inoculates us against the deadly effects of sin. It's better than a vaccine as we understand it. Most of us have been vaccinated to varying degrees for some of these uh, terrible illnesses, terrible viruses that, that go around. But those vaccines don't last forever. Some only last a year or a few years, and some even up to 10 years. But eventually, those vaccines lose their effectiveness. But here it says in verse 21, that as sinned, sin hath reigned unto death, even so my grace reign through righteousness for how long? It says unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is inoculated. We're inoculated from sin rather eternally by grace. It doesn't have an expiry date. And that is what makes God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord so amazing. And often we use that term, amazing grace. And it is amazing for many reasons, some of which we'll go through today. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if grace is so powerful and is so amazing, why should we be so concerned about sin? If it saves us from that sin, then we don't need to be so worried about it and just keep on living as if nothing has changed. But he says, God forbid, or as a strong language, in other words, saying, of course not. No way should that be the case. It's kind of like saying, if we have vaccines for some of these dreaded diseases like polio and smallpox, smallpox, should we take any precautions? If we have them in some lab somewhere, locked up, should they really have to be locked up so so tightly in these class four labs that have all of these precautions to make sure they don't leave the lab? We have vaccines after all. And the answer is, of course not. We have to take them seriously. And we do take significant precautions in our culture to make sure these deadly diseases stay locked up in the place they should be so they don't, we don't have an outbreak again because they are unpredictable. Yes, we have ways of dealing with it to varying degrees, but because they're unpredictable, we have respect unto them. We don't, we fear them and rightly so. In, 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 in the same way, we should be wary or be cautious about sin and avoid it at all costs. As we heard this, as we hear the song that said, sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. It'll take, take you farther than you think you, than you think it will. And it'll cost you. And so we have the exhortation here that if we're dead to sin, we should not be living any longer therein. We shouldn't be playing with it. We shouldn't be toying with it. We should put a great distance between us and the sin that thus so easily beset us and entice us. If I were to take a poll among those of you that are listening 
and say, how many of you believe in God's grace? I'm pretty sure that the results would come back with an overwhelming majority that we believe in God's grace. But I think the more important question is, have you been rescued by God's grace? Have you been changed, shaped, molded, strengthened by God's grace? See, if we think of the rescue, being rescued by God's grace, rescued from our sinful nature, we see in verses 3 to 5 in chapter 6 that we read together, describes how we become rescued. We identify with Jesus as we are buried with baptism. By baptism into his death that we then are raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. If we're planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So this word picture being planted together, in other words, being connected together as we're buried in baptism, signifying his death and then raised again to new life. The scripture in Ephesians summarizes that well. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is not something we can, we cannot rescue ourselves, but we need to be rescued by God's grace. Many of you will probably remember two years ago, the emergency that developed in Thailand, where there was a young uh, soccer team, boys aged eight, 11 to 16, and their coach, who was aged 25 at the time after their practice, they went in to explore some caves. And as they were going in, they were surprised by a flash flood that cut them off from the entrance of the of the cave and forced them deeper into the mountain as they fled for their lives, searching for a place that avoided the rising water around them. And it wasn't long, it was a number of hours before the uh, world outside suddenly recognized there was an emergency here and mobilized a tremendous force to rescue them. It took about a week and a half and over a hundred divers that came from across the world for this rescue operation. And as they desperately searched through the miles of caves underwater in treacherous conditions, one diver even lost his life in that mission. And in a week and a half, they found them miraculously alive. Beyond hope, they had been, be, began to have given up hope. In a week and a half, they found them in an air bubble deep inside the heart of the mountain and commenced a rescue operation. Now imagine what would have happened if the divers, as they found them in this cave that still had some air in it, came out and said, we're here to rescue you. And the response saying, oh, well, thanks for coming. We really don't need your help right now. Can you just please give us a shovel and we'll dig our way out of this mountain? Or maybe if you just lend us your equipment, we'll swim our way out of here. That would have been the height of arrogance and ignorance. Why? Because they were in a treacherous circumstance. 
They didn't really understand the logistics of what was the, the, the rescue operation that had been mounted on their behalf. And in the course of that two and a half weeks through this process, more than 10,000 people had been mobilized to rescue them. More than a hundred countries provided help for that operation. There was no guarantee for success. It was high-risk operation to get these young boys out of their precarious circumstance. They didn't realize how precarious their circumstance was. They didn't realize that the whole world was watching they didn't realize the amount of effort that had, was going in to rescue them and how many lives were at risk and at stake for this rescue operation. And God be thanked, they were rescued. In many ways, I see an analogy where God mounted a rescue operation for every single one of us. We don't really recognize the circumstance that we're in. We don't realize how uh, uh, precarious our scenario was. Like, even in their, in their case, not only was it a difficult operation, but the timing of it was critical because the rescue had only a few days to pull that off after they had pumped out more than a billion liters of water to get the, 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 the water level down to a, a, to a um, degree that allowed them for the rescue, but the monsoons were on the horizon. And when those monsoons came, they knew they were going to be cut off for at least four months. And that would have certainly meant that every one of them would have perished. And so the timing was critical for them to get out at that time. There was no... Time for delay. And in many ways, our salvation has a lot of similarities to that. We don't fully recognize, if we are unsaved, the the situation, how precarious it is that God has mobilized a plan that started before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, to put in motion the greatest rescue operation ever. And when the fullness of time, the scripture says, came, Jesus himself came and performed all things necessary for the rescue to take place. And yet, we, in our arrogance, in our ignorance, so easily reject that offer of that favor, that unmerited favor, that grace that comes to save us from that, from our situation. We say, I'm good enough. I'm okay. Maybe if you just, rather than give me a shovel, give, give me a ladder and, and I'll be able to climb my way out of this, out of this situation. I'll be able to climb with my good works all the way up to heaven. I'm not that bad after all. Or or maybe the, the situation I'm in, just like those boys were in the cave, the cave isn't so bad after all. We have enough air. You brought us some food. We can survive here. It's okay. Not realizing that that place 
where those boys were in would only sustain life for a very short period of time. Much like our lives here, we are only sustained here for a short period of time, and there is a great world awaiting in eternity that Christ himself, through his grace that he offers, wants to rescue us from our current circumstance and bring us into a new life, a new world, a new vision. Imagine what they would have missed if perhaps maybe as all analogies have limits, the the boys there didn't have to be convinced that they needed to be rescued because they knew what the outside world was like and they wanted to go back to it. They didn't want to stay in the place they were at. The difference with us is that we haven't seen the eternal glory that is awaiting for us to experience that God has created for us. And he wants to ferry us. He wants to take us from where we're at and translate us into that glory. And if you have not accepted that rescue invitation, if you have not accepted that gift of God's grace, that offer has an expiry date. It is not guaranteed for tomorrow. The scripture says that today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If you hear his voice, and if you read the scripture yourself, you will hear his voice. This is not something that you need to wait for a a dream, or you need to wait for a near-death experience. But the scripture is plain in virtually every page of our need for that salvation, that grace, and God's heart, his desire, and the length at which he went to ensure that we can be rescued. There are two things, I think, that are common of what those boys experienced that we also need to experience. One is they recognized that their need of being saved. And secondly, they trusted someone else to save them. They recognized their limitations. They could not be saved on their own. And that true is 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 necessary for us to recognize our need of salvation, to recognize that that sin nature that we have contracted, we call it a disease, a fatal disease. The only way to be saved from that is through God's grace and through this, the scriptures that we said, through being baptized into Christ's death, being resurrected and become in the likeness excuse me, being planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then in verse 11, it says, we can uh, likewise reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has prepared all things. In a way, it's as Simple as ABCs. A, to admit that we are in need of rescue. Admit that we need to be saved from this deadly disease. And to believe, to believe that God can save us 
from this disease. You may think, well, I don't feel like I'm diseased. I don't feel like I have a sin problem. And that may be because you haven't read enough of the scripture to realize that every single one of us struggle at times. And we've broken probably most, if not all, of the Ten Commandments and the many other laws, moral laws and spiritual laws that are in the Scripture. That we struggle with unforgiveness or we struggle as we hate someone or, 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 or have been hurt by someone and, and have hard feelings towards them. Or <clears throat> if we haven't told the truth or if we're, we've all been selfish We've all lusted. We've all been disobedience to authorities, whether that was our parents or whether that was our spiritual authorities or those authorities in place in our, uh, um, in whatever circumstance that, that we're in. None of us can say that we are righteous. The scripture makes it clear that there is no one righteous. No, not one. Yes, we do good things, but none of them are able to pay and rescue us from these other sins that we struggle with. And so the first place is to admit, and the second place is to believe that God has provided the solution. The first words that we, that are recorded in Mark's gospel, the first words of Jesus that are recorded there, let me read it for you. I believe it's in Mark, the first chapter in verse Let's see the reference right now, but it, but the words <clears throat> are repent and believe the gospel. He's called he called his disciples and those around him to repent and believe the gospel that Jesus was there to rescue them, to be their savior. And then we need to enter into a covenant with him. A covenant is not a common term we use today. It's probably most easily understood from a covenant of marriage. Marriage is, um, it's not just an agreement and in a contract. Those of you that <clears throat> are married will remember your wedding date where you not only gave your vows as a promise one to another, but you also signed a piece of paper. But it was more than just that contract of marriage. It's a lifelong commitment one to another through thick and thin. And that covenant is something that God wants to enter into with every one of us. And the scripture in, in Hebrews summarizes that well, where we, we can read in Hebrews 10 verse 16, where the scripture says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is a covenant, a lifelong and eternal covenant that he is, wants to enter into. He wants us to enter into with him. Those are the ABCs to admit, to believe, and enter into a covenant with God himself. And though it is simple... It isn't easy. Though it is simple to maybe understand, it isn't easy to accomplish, not because God hasn't done his part, it's because it requires us 
to humble ourselves and to recognize that we cannot be God in our lives, that only God himself can be the one that saves us and that we are in need of his grace. And so we need to experience the rescue by God's grace. But it doesn't just stop with the rescue of God's grace. We also need to be changed by God's grace. And we read about that change in verse 14 of chapter 6 as we um, uh, meditate on that together. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. How do you know that you are not under the law of legalism, under the law of sin and death? The scripture gives a very easy answer to that in verse 14. How do we know that? It says, if sin does not have dominion over us, if sin does not rule over us in our hearts, if we are not controlled by our sinful nature, and that can only happen by God's grace. When we are under his grace, it says in verse 14. God's grace calls us to change and then gives us the power to do that change. It would be kind of unfair if we were called to do that change but not given the tools or not given the ability to experience that change or have the power to do it. It would be like someone that needs to be rescued, like those boys. Tell them and inform them of their need to be rescued, but then not provide the means for the rescue itself. But God's grace, that unmerited favor, does both. It calls us to change, gives us the vision for what that change looks like, and then gives us the power to be able to experience that. See, the prophet uh, Ezekiel, through the, through the prophet Ezekiel, God spoke to him and gave him a vision. Gave him an example. It says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Think about this promise. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart to take away your old diseased heart and replace it with a new heart that will allow you to Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and to do them. Perhaps back then it may have been a little bit hard to understand this whole notion of the centrality of the heart to life in our physical bodies. And it was only in the last maybe 40, 50 years that we understood this concept and, 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 and have experienced the ability to undergo a heart transplant. Where someone who has a weak heart, unable to sustain life, receives a new heart. And some of you may remember a number of years ago in the news where there was a circumstance, every parent's worst nightmare, where their 13-year-old daughter 
was tragically killed in an accident. And in, a, in, in the set of emotions that followed in the flurry of activity, first to try to save her life, not being able to and recognizing that and make a decision about her organs, they decided to donate as many of those organs as they could so that it, it could save other people's lives. And one of those organs was the heart. Taylor Storch was her name, the 13-year-old daughter. So as the parents made that heart-wrenching decision to give these organs to help others, they had one simple request that those that were those lives that were saved by these organs that they would be able to meet those people. And so her heart, Tracy's heart was transported across the country and was given to a young mother who at that point was sleeping 18 hours a day, no longer able to care for her family because her heart was diseased and it was progressive. There was no hope to save it with that existing heart. Instead, she needed a new heart and she got that in the form of this, of Tracy's heart and the transplant took place and saved her life, enabled her to live a new life, enabled her to again be a mother, and in her case, she was a nurse, enabled her to help others as a result of that. And when Tracy's mother then traveled across the country for her last wish to hear the beating heart of her daughter, one that was now dead, but wanted to hear the beating heart of her daughter in the body of another, She came and with the stethoscope was able to hear the beating of that heart and how it gave life, new life to a new person. In a sense, I I, I see the scripture, the prophet Ezekiel, or God through the prophet Ezekiel, giving us the same analogy that he wants to give us a new heart because our heart, a spiritual heart, does not have the ability to sustain us spiritually. We're doomed without it. And we see the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, uh, verse 20, where he gives a beautiful picture when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the picture that we see that, that God gave his life so that we could have life, that his life is in us. Now, if you think of the, how amazing that is, we read in many scriptures that Christ is beside us. He calls us to his side. Christ is above us. Christ is ahead of us. He's even behind us as he was protecting the children of Israel. There's all of these analogies. But here, I believe the most powerful analogy is Christ in us. And we read in, 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 in Colossians, the, the, the first chapter, I think an apt, an apt summary of how amazing that is. Colossians, the first chapter, verse 27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So he's saying there's a mystery, there's an unknown, there's a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a gap here. And this mystery 
is revealed. It says, what is it? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the mystery. That is the, the, um, that's what was revealed. That as part of the plan of salvation, it wasn't just that Jesus was going to rescue us through his death and resurrection. While that is true, it was more than that. That he was going to be in us to provide us the hope of glory. And you think of that. In a sense that that, that God <clears throat> gives us. Christ within us, and, and, and that gives us the life and the, 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 the power to change. And it's all because of his grace. And this is the change that it talks about that we read together in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 17 and 18. It says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. This is the change that he affects in our life. He rescues us. He changes us. And this change is an ongoing experience. Yes, we're rescued and uh, we should not have, sin should not have dominion over us. But there is a grace Unto grace experience that the scripture talks about. That we grow from grace to grace. There's additional levels of maturity that this grace works in us. Much like a baby that grows in a, in a time of, of, of where a baby needs everything. Though it has been given new life, it needs to grow and mature and to be able to handle more and more responsibility. And the same is how God's grace works in our lives. When he gives us new life, when we uh, uh, accept his grace in our heart and he rescues us, it says we are then born as new babes. New babes in Christ. And we need to grow and mature and learn. And I believe it was uh, recently this past Wednesday when Brother Ben preached on the holiness that we ask ourselves a question, how are we growing in holiness? And I asked the same question this morning, how are we growing in grace? How are we doing with the circumstances that we come across in life when we've been hurt by someone? Are we struggling with forgiveness? Or if we've seen our selfish nature, where we want something rather than to see others first. And we don't necessarily know our level of selfishness, how mature we are in there, until God brings across circumstances that reveal to us as a mirror of the things that we need to grow in. How open are our eyes to the needs around us? It was interesting as I was looking through various references of grace that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there's many, many references of grace, but in that context, it's talking about the grace of giving. 
Giving to the needs of others so that we would reach into our pockets, that we would be willing to distribute to the necessities of the saints, that those that are in need would be able to have some level of equality. That they wouldn't be struggling for life knowing where their next meal is coming from, but that they would have the basic necessities especially when they're in a circumstance that is beyond their capability to remedy. And that's a measure of growing in grace that the Scripture describes in 2 Corinthians there, of how well we are attuned to those needs. And so if we were to uh, look and examine our bank accounts, if we would look at the amount of time that we're spending to minister Grace to others. That gives us a picture of our level of maturity and how much we've been changed and shaped by God's grace. Because it's possible, I believe it's possible, to be saved by God's grace and to still stay as a baby, not mature. And that is not God's will at all. He desires us to grow in each of the measures of his grace, transmitting that unmerited favor that we have received to others as well. The Apostle Peter writes in the first, first Peter Chapter 5, verse 10, he says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after he had suffered the while, make you perfect, established, and strengthen, and settle you. This is another aspect of God's grace. Not only does God's grace rescue us, not only does it continue to change us and shape us and mold us, but it also strengthens and establishes us. How does it do that? Because it provides the solid foundation that we can base our lives on. That we don't need to be suddenly fearful or suddenly wondering what is going to happen in the future because the last chapter has already been written. And it's only by God's grace that as we look into the last uh, book of the Bible and Revelation, we see how everything will unfold, that the war will be won, even though at times it seems that certain battles are being lost, certain setbacks are occurring, whether that's personally or collectively as 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 a family or as a church or as a nation. Those things will happen, and they can be very difficult to go through. But God's grace strengthens us to be able to endure through those times of suffering, the Apostle Peter writes, so that we can make it through. And... Experience the final victory or experience the final outcome of God's grace working in our lives. And so, as we can consider this concept of God's amazing grace, may 
we have a better understanding of his heart in this whole matter, of how he desires to rescue us, how he desires to, 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 to change us, to shape us, to mold us, and to strengthen and establish us all through that amazing grace. And may this grace be with you, be with me, and be with us, and within us. And may it, as the scripture says, make us perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Amen.